what is a significant impact? You know, it's not wooden glasses frames. It's not CO2 to diamonds. It's going to be decarbonizing cement, steel, glass. Welcome to the final episode of season three of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. Before we jump into the rest of the intro, thank you. Thank you again for making this the number one net zero focused podcast. While the team and I at The Net Zero Life haven't met you, we know you're out there and we know you're listening. It's kind of creepy, but we know it, we can see the numbers, and we know that you're sharing it with people who want to understand the innovators tackling climate change. This season alone, we've broken all sorts of records. The team and I are going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back at it, bringing you new content in season four. Okay, on to the season finale. On the show today is Lou Schick, Director of Investments at Clean Energy Ventures. Clean Energy Ventures, or CEV, is helping founders build a cleaner future by investing in early-stage climate tech companies. Lou has more than 20 years of experience as a technologist and investor. In his investing role at Clean Energy Ventures, Lou works with deal teams to source, screen, and diligence new investments, as well as support the portfolio companies on technology, markets, strategy, and commercialization. Prior to joining CEV, Lou was a co-founder, partner, and CTO at New World Capital, and served as managing director at Ritchie Capital. From 1997 to 2005, Lou held a variety of positions at General Electric's corporate research and energy groups. Lou facilitated GE's entrance into both solar and wind energy, which we get into the show, and led GE's solid oxide fuel cell program. Lou is trained as a physicist and co-authored papers in accelerator physics, space physics, and biophysics, as well as earning 10 granted U.S. patents. He holds a BS in physics from Union College and an MS in physics from Cornell University. A quick note before we dive in. While Lou had been thinking about climate since his days in university, not everyone starts there. You can take climate action as well, and there's no better place to start than by spending your 40-hour work week innovating in Net Zero Future. The Net Zero Life's incredible partner for Season 3 is Climate People, and it's because they're 100% focused on placing individuals in roles that tackle climate change. They're the only recruiting firm solely dedicated to climate tech. We'll hear more from them during the break, but if you're looking to spend all of your time working in climate, they're the first place to start. I would know. They helped me go from Amazon to climate tech in less than a third of a time it took me to find my previous role. Okay, back to Lou and the season finale. As you'll hear, Lou is a fantastic storyteller with lots of fun stories to share. He's a contrarian with a strong moral compass. Influenced by his father and determined to innovate, he spent the majority of his career peering over the edge at Earth's carrying capacity, and he's determined to make sure we avoid reaching it. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with your time at Cornell and uh, graduating with a master's? Sure. Um, yeah, so so my father was a, a college physics professor, and I thought that's what, you know, I was supposed to do as a grown-up. So I went to Cornell um, and a PhD program, and I was originally going to do particle physics, and I ended up falling in love with the accelerator they have a lovely little accelerator. And I figured out I could run it. I could, I could turn the big knob and, and make the particles smash into each other. So um, I, you know, was a fairly typical PhD student. Um, I got into research very quickly. My uh, compatriots at the school were politically active, which I found really endearing and wonderful. And they were really passionate about blocking um, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was Ronald Reagan's way of seeing if he could spend an enormous amount of money on scaring the Soviets. That battle had largely been won. Congress had, had been refusing to, to spend as much money on it. And by the way, they still spend an unbelievable, like billions of dollars a year on, on, on it. But uh, I was trying to convince my, my uh, fellow grad students that the real problem was climate and that we should really focus on that and that what, that's what physicists should, should spend their time doing was was explaining climate challenge and trying to fix it. Um, and so one of my uh, one of my office mates, um, Chris Moore, was one of the founders of the Cornell Green Party. Uh, so that was that was among the things that happened. The other thing that happened was I, I sort of ran into challenges with my um, 
thesis committee and decided that it was either going to take, well, it was going to take me a really long time doing things I wasn't really passionate about to finish my PhD. And so I asked for what's lovingly called a consolation master's degree and, and uh, quit. And I went and I taught high school. You mentioned you were trying to convince the Green Party to get into focus on climate. What time, just for people who don't have the context, what time is this? And how how are you already thinking about this space, which presumably other people aren't if you're trying to convince them? Yeah, so um, so I think I started graduate school in 1988, which sounds shockingly long ago now in, in <laughs> retrospect. Um, but, um, I, you know, my father, I, I mentioned, was a was a. a a college physics professor. And, and when I was growing up, he taught, you know, an energy and environment course in the mid seventies. And part of the reason he started teaching that was um, in response to uh, there was a big movement spawned by the club of Rome report on the sort of carrying capacity of the earth. And there was a pop science book called the limits to growth. And what the conversations were about was, you know, arable land and water and climate impact and sustainability. And these were topics that were, not widely discussed by by the general population, but a lot of a lot of you know sort of educated folk were were chattering about this in the seventies. I mean, I think I mentioned before that, that in some ways it's an echo of of the eighteen thirties Malthus kind of conversation, where um, what happened in in each of these cases was that there were technical advances that put off the reckoning, but they didn't change the fundamental issue that there is a fundamental carrying capacity of the earth, and the resources we're using do run out if we're not careful about it. Um, and so I had this mindset that we really needed to do a better job uh, and that there were real limits that we were going to run into and that the toolkit for both understanding the problems and addressing it was going to be based in physics. And for listeners who are following the show, The Wizard and the Prophet is a book that I've talked about numerous times, but portrays both the, the, the technologist view and the kind of wizard view or the prophet view that says that, you know, we are going to run out and we are going to hit our limits to growth but you are a self-described technologist. And so how does the perspective and the frameworks and ideas of a person who you know, is impacted or not impacted, but has this background of Malthus and uh, the Club of Rome limits to population or limits to growth uh, report, how does that impact now your view as an investor and a technologist and saying, can we permanently push off those uh, downstream effects that will cause rapid decline in human population? Big question. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, I think one of the things, another another name from the distant past was, was Hubbard. Um, so there's a fellow named Hubbard who was looking at the oil production in the United States and saying it was going to peak. And um, like so many of these ideas, it was a fairly straightforward idea, which is if you watch the production um, and the evolution of the oil fields, they would eventually get tapped out. And it looked like while the U.S. was dominant in producing oil, it wasn't going to be forever. And Hubbard basically was trying to warn the oil majors that, you know, this peak was coming, we should do something. And that got misconstrued as we're hitting peak oil production in 1974, and we're all screwed and we're all going to have to sit in the cold. And what was actually being said was, unless some fundamental assumptions are changed, we're going to hit peak oil production in 1974. And the, the, the assumptions that needed changing were, were pretty straightforward. There were all sorts of technological approaches that got thrown at this and a whole classes of other problems that sort of changed the economic recoverability of mined resources, you know, so enhanced oil recovery, horizontal drilling, seismics in the oil industry. But you can go through this in agricultural yields. You can go through this in you know, lifespans, you name it, there are technical and sociological innovations that move the boundary, but they don't still change the fundamental thing that no matter how efficiently you're using a finite resource, you'll use it up. And so I think we'd mentioned earlier in our, in our, in our conversation, you know, one of the issues about sort of the green revolution in India, um, when the dwarf wheat was introduced, some people interpreted that as, oh, it's fixed. Um, but the, the people who were mostly involved in inventing the dwarf wheat that, that could carry bigger heads uh, without falling over into the mud were, thought of it as buying time. The idea was people are starving and they're miserable right now. What we need to do is get them well enough off that we can take a step back and say, how are we going to do this for realsy? So I guess for me, the prophet and the wizard conversation is I, I, I kind of feel like I'm supposed to be in both camps. I'm supposed to understand um, based on the current set of assumptions, what, what are the constraints? 
And then what assumptions can we change and what does that buy us? But it doesn't buy us out of the problem. It buys us time. It buys us quality of life while we're solving the problem. But, you know, the question I asked in one of my, one of my, I gave a bunch of seminars when I was at New World was if you're, if you're not planning a sustainable economy, what is your plan? <laughs> it's, it seems concerning. Yeah, perhaps somebody else's problem. So these are pretty in-depth conversations that perhaps you're having with physics students, uh, if we, or physics high school students, I should clarify. If we go back, we'll kind of follow the, the timeline and interject as we go through the interview. You finish your master's, you want to have these amazing conversations with high school students. How did you, and you earlier mentioned doing what you're passionate about, how did teaching high school physics become your passion? Yeah. So, I mean, I was raised in a, in a teaching household, right? This was fundamentally how we approach things. If you, if if I came across a problem and my grandmother, Anna, once uh, commented on this when I was a little, a little kid, I, I described something to her and she gave me a frowny face. And so I, I described it again in different words. And she was just shocked by the idea that, oh, he's reading the audience and he's, and he's retelling it. But this was, I was raised by, you know, a teacher. So, so this idea of communicating and connecting with other people about fundamentally complicated and interesting ideas, I, I guess for me has always been a passion and it's very rewarding. And high school students, um, you know, I, I went in with, with big thoughts, right? So Alexis de Tocqueville, I read uh, Democracy in America and he talked about, you know, the role of public education. And, and to some extent, when, when Jackson gets elected president, Tocqueville's like, and that scared everybody that we probably need an educated populace because otherwise we'd have, um, you know, autocrats running the country like Jackson. Like, wow, that's disturbingly prescient. But, um, but anyway, I, I, so I went in with the belief that public education was about teaching citizens to hold the decision makers to account. And then in order to do so, they needed to be, um, you know, they were inventing all sorts of terms when I was doing this, but numeracy was a popular phrase at the time, but, but essentially science literate who, you know, what's big, what's little, what's possible, what's not possible. Are you being lied to by your leaders? I really, really wanted to empower the high school students to deal with that sort of thing. So, you know, I, 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 um, I'm saying this sarcastically, but I endeared myself to the high school librarian by telling my students they should go find out um, what the federal budget was and, you know, what were the major spending items in the federal budget, you know, uh, and, and we, and I use this as a way to teach orders of magnitude and scientific notation to high school kids. Um, And, you know, so it was, it was kind of subversive because there were all these discussions about the national Academy, I'm sorry, the national endowment for the arts and it was, you know, five zeros smaller than the than the money that was being wasted on on buying tanks that the military said it didn't want. And I just figured, you know, if I'm going to bother to teach scientific notation, why don't I get something that the kids will remember? So, you know, that's where we started. And another one, and I think uh, I mentioned this. I just I just got a quote for a for a new system for my basement. But um, uh, I had become aware of ground source heat pumps. So this is in the early 1990s, and. Ground source heat pumps or geosource or geoexchange, there's all sorts of fancy names for it. They're ubiquitous in Germany already by that time. But in the United States, it was just, you know, unimaginable. Um, and I wanted, I discovered that in New York State, you could only subdivide a piece of property once or uh, I think it was two or three times. And, except there was an exemption if you were a property developer. And so you could go and you could cut a piece of property into hundreds of pieces but the state used to extort a pound of flesh at the time. And they, I guess that's probably not a great phrase at this point, even though it's Shakespeare, um, but the, the state would, would extort something from the developers. And usually they would be like, I want wide roads and fire hydrants. And I'm like, how about something that's like energy appropriate? Maybe we could do district heating. Maybe we could do geosource. And so I tried to teach my high school students about that. And wh- where this is somewhat heading is I taught them about it and they found it interesting, but I was not probably pitching the right audience. For those who are interested in heat pumps, episode 10 of The Net Zero Life is with Kathy Anoon, uh, who's the founder of a New York State-based heat pump organization. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but Dandelion Energy. Yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with Dandelion. So Pat, Pat Sappens lead Urban Future Lab asked me to talk to, um, to, talk to them when they won uh, the the program there. And uh, a guy I went to college with named John Shavaco, whose company is replacing my heat pump, actually mentored them and taught them how to do real installs. 
Um, so no, I'm, I'm quite close, close to it, near and dear to my heart, and I still can't, you know, give it up. Yeah, yeah, and Kathy's great. Dandelion Energy's great. You were talking about um, helping people understand the order of magnitude, right? And um, basically shifting their framework and giving them the information they need to make the correct decisions. Are there people today that need that education in terms of a climate perspective? Uh, and, and particularly as a venture fund, for those who aren't familiar, if you can kind of help paint the picture of how limited partners play into it and how their desires and wants affect the investment decisions. And do those, does that side of the equation, do they need climate education and investment education in terms of that, in that realm too? Yeah, that's, that, that's a little complicated to unpack. So let me see if I can do it in pieces and you can jump back in if I'm, if I'm missing the point. Um, one example that I, that I cite fairly frequently, and I pick a, I pick a victim. Um, it, I'm going to be very sarcastic and insulting about something I'm not very close to. Um, but I, I, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, an organization called CREO that was founded by um, a bunch of really wonderful people. And I've gotten to know them fairly well. I know some of the, um, some of the senior staffers and um, uh, one of the, my bosses, Temple Fennell, is a member through, through his family. And these were basically um, loosely family offices that had made a lot of money often in, um, you know, sort of the 20th century Brown economy. And they're like, okay, we, we're well positioned and have a responsibility to do better next time. Uh, and and they, they, they've actually, I think it's grown in sophistication. It's a wonderful group. I love them. Um, one of the members maintains a list of companies that are doing carbon dioxide to value. So on that list were companies that were taking carbon dioxide out of the air and making diamonds. And for me, that I already start laughing, like that's the punchline for me. But, um, but I realize that's not quite fair. So, so depending on how you choose to count, you can allocate about 10 to 15 tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year per American. Um, that's a lot of diamonds. And that's really, that's, that's it. I mean, that's the like, you know, it, it's an interesting technological stunt. It may make an attractive statement, but it is not relevant on the scale of it's going to make a difference directly. If it changes hearts and minds, maybe that's, that's a, you know, a worthwhile thing to do. So to transition to that, um, you know, we, we had at clean energy ventures, we, we have a mandate that we're going to invest in things that make a difference in the climate, but we actually interpreted that after I got hired much more explicitly than we had originally. And so, as a, as a venture investor, right, um, I'm investing in very early stage companies and their full impact, therefore, is probably, you know, later. Ideally, I've sold the company and have returned money to my limited partners who trusted me to manage their money, us to manage their money. And that may have all happened, you know, decades before the full impact of the companies can occur. But we at least wanted to have the idea that if the companies were successful and they changed what people are capable of doing, and they were widely adopted. Let's say we sell to a you know an oil major that transforms from being an oil company to being some other kind of energy company. Let's fantasize that they all become offshore wind companies because they have competence in that. If the if the innovation is really successful, what we declared was we wanted to have two and a half gigatons of averted CO two equivalent uh, GHGs between now and twenty fifty, and. We have about 20 companies in the portfolio, and that starts to be visible. When you start saying, what is the, what is the problem that needs solving? Um, even though we're a tiny little fund, we have $110 million under management. If all of our companies you know, hit that target, you could see us as a, as a visible pie wedge as part of the solution. And what that did for us internally was it said, we need to take really big swings. We need to take risky bets on things that can have really big impact. There's a, a phrase that came out of ARPA-E, I'm sure it came before that, but it was, if, if it works, will it matter? Um, and so recalibrating ourselves, and then we actually pushed out um, a calculator for, for the entrepreneur saying, you know, if it works, will it matter? <laughs> and we encouraged them to figure out sort of the unit economics and the unit carbon impact, because they should be coupled, right? If you're a wildly successful company, you sell a lot of units, and if each unit does a decent amount of good, then real goodness comes out. So we were really trying to educate the whole investment community about what, what is a significant impact. You know, it's not wooden glasses frames. It's not 
CO2 to diamonds, it's going to be decarbonizing cement, steel, glass. Uh, it's going to be, you know, completely renewable grid that is actually stable anyway. And so we have rejected as investors a bunch of perfectly good business ideas that don't achieve that kind of impact. And it's not that somebody shouldn't invest in those. It's, it's just that's not our mission. Our mission is to make a big dent. For the listener who's not familiar with Creo Syndicate, a, there's a great piece on Bloomberg that I will put in the show notes about how they phrase it as this super secret organization with families with uh, you know significant major major opportunities, um, and it's a really fun organization to learn about. Uh, Aether Diamonds. I'm not sure if that's who you're referring to, but they do do very cool stuff. There were there were three companies on on the list that made diamonds. And and again, it's not, I mean, it's not fair to knock them, but that is not, you know. Yeah, yeah. No. And then, um, you know, when you were talking about companies transitioning from oil to offshore, I kept thinking of Orsted, which has such an amazing story, right, of, you know, formerly being Dong, the Danish natural gas uh, company, and now the, you know, premier wind, offshore wind generator. And I will link a show note to their white paper and their story as well. Going back to your teaching gig. So at a certain point, you uh, teach yourself out of a job. Um, I don't know if that's how you phrase it. And then you have two kids looking for a role. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the golden era of GE. And you managed to convince them, despite not being an engineer, to hire, hire you as an engineer. Walk us through that story and then your GE career and how that leads into the next stage of your, um, the next stage of your life. So I'll leave her last name off because because I didn't ask her permission for this. But when, um, so I, I basically got fired from my high school teaching job. The way it works um, in public school in most of the country, but certainly in New York, is if they don't fire you before you finish three years, they're stuck with you, um, which is not quite the tenure process I grew up with in in at, at in college, where you have to fight like crazy and demonstrate that you're very special. It's not a good system. And I'm um, outspoken, pretty obviously so. And I was trying to change things very rapidly. And I scared the hell out of my high school principal. And she needed to make sure, who, by the way, had been the vice principal when I went to that high school. Um, I, I scared her. And so she fired me. Um, and, you know, it was foreseeable. I had mentors that were saying, couldn't you have just kept your head down for six more months? And it, no, it turns out I'm not, I'm not constitutionally able to do that. But um, so I became underemployed, but I got notified um, over winter break. And so I still had the whole spring semester with my students. Um, and I found out that GE was hiring um, uh, service engineers. And what a service engineer, I found out later, does, did at that point was when a field engineer is trying to repair a gas turbine in wherever and they get stuck, they call the, uh, the factory and, and someone's supposed to help them through the really dicey problems. So um, in getting into this role, the first thing I did was I asked all of my students, um, do any of you have parents that work at GE? I really need to get an interview. Can you make sure that they don't lose my resume? Because um, I'm shameless. And Jen asked her father, and he did make sure that my resume got looked at. And, um, and then when I went to go for the interview, um, my, one of my best friend's fathers was a, was a, a GE graduate. I called him up and he taught me what a gas turbine was. And then he taught me how, how to read a, a, a drawing. I, I'd never looked at an engineering drawing. Remember, I'm just a physicist. Never looked at an engineering drawing. He told, he told me, you know, about the sizes and the labels and so forth. And I went in and I, you know, I faked it till I made it. Oh, it's so great. What a great story. So exemplary of uh, people who are trying to get into climate today. Uh, you know, lots of young people that I meet. I'm probably falling into that category are, you know, I want to get into the space and it's, you know, one who, you know, and two, um, you know, fake until you make it and three care a lot, uh, and, and push and keep going until you get there for context. Um, GE is the most valuable company for people who aren't familiar, right? GE is the most valuable company in the world from 1993 to 1998. And then again, in the early 2000s, part you're there during that time. And, uh, you know, it's a different place now, but like peak Jack Welsh, you managed to move up from, or I don't know if you described moving up, but you move up from gas turbine engineer to eventually leading a group of people with a, a, a group of people, a hundred scientists and engineers in the disruptive technology um, research lab. So a little bit, how did you get there? And then how do you teach yourself what it looks like in terms of disruptive technology, including by the way, solar and wind, which are 
not a huge part of the economy at that time. Any perspectives? It, actually, before I add another com- another question, I will um, we'll get into the sol- the the renewable energy piece after the first question. Yeah. So so Jack Jack was not a nice person, um, and so within four months of having been hired as what was supposed to be one of ten people doing product service, me and the second guy they hired and they changed their minds. We were all told that our jobs were moving to Atlanta. And I was not moving to Atlanta. And so I was confronted almost immediately with another, you know, sort of crisis. And I managed to convince some folks over at the GE Research Center that, you know, I was a particle physicist, I can invent detectors. And so I started inventing um, detectors for gas turbines. None, none, none that, it, it, long story for another day, but nobody's ever going to put another sensor in a gas turbine was the message that I got over time. But people were impressed with the, the sort of go get it you know, kind of attitude and some of the innovation. So I managed to get in um, over at the GE Research Center and I was doing remote monitoring and diagnostics of gas turbines. Nowadays, people like the phrase digital twin, which I think is very entertaining, but whatever. Um, I, uh, I did a bunch of different jobs at GE. One of the things that Jack did was he derisively referred to the research center as the country club. And um, he decided that we were all too spoiled and we should have to fight for our jobs every year. And so we had to essentially write research proposals internally to the company and get them funded. And we were billed out. So I was getting paid like $45,000 a year and I was getting billed out at like $300,000 a year. So not only did I have to justify my own existence, I had to justify like an order of magnitude above my own existence. So I did a whole bunch of things. I won't belabor them all. I got in charge of this disruptive technology role, which got invented. And then I had to give it up after six months. And the reason was that what we'd rattled off was um, the most disruptive technology facing GE at the time. And I think we're in 1998 was gas fired reciprocating engines had become so good and so clean that you couldn't sell a small gas turbine anymore. And GE didn't make recips and we made turbines. So this was, this was a big deal. It turns out one of my later partners at New World Capital Group went and bought uh, Yenbacher, which became GE Yenbacher. And um, so my little note about how important this progress was and how dangerous it was for GE was sort of helpful in him getting that deal done completely independently uh, processed. Second thing that we wrote down was that wind had gotten cheap. And this was, I was mostly cribbing stuff from a, a good friend of mine named Jim Lyons, who was an evangelist for wind power went to Jack and Jack said, we're not, we're not buying glorified pinwheels. Um, and then had to go back when it was Jeff and um, ended up buying Enron wind out of bankruptcy. Luckily there's some American corporation that will totally screw up and you can buy assets really cheap. That was one of the GE philosophies. The other one was solar. And we were showing that solar was on this exciting learning curve. And when I pitched it as a disruptive technology, I said, one thing you should understand is it'll be at least a decade before there's a gigawatt of installed solar. So this is much more an opportunity for GE industrial systems to sell inverters and for GE capital to finance it, um, which I still think was a really perceptive thing to say. Not so much in GE, they didn't really buy it that way, but they did go and buy a solar company out of bankruptcy. And then right below that was the solid oxide fuel cell um, proposal that Siemens Westinghouse said they were going to make something that was I don't know, 20 points more efficient than than our best machine. And so we got challenged to beat them or prove it couldn't be done because, you know, GE gives easy assignments. So that so we built a I built a team um, and I had no direct reports. I was still on paper, an individual contributor. And because GE bases your salary on what you came in at, not what you're doing, um, I was still getting paid, you know, Below what senior high school teachers were getting paid while I was managing 100 people globally, $20 million a year budget to try and invent solid oxide fuel cell power plant. Um, but I had I had this incredibly exciting opportunity because I was far too young and too inexperienced to really know what I was doing. But the talent pool inside GE was unbelievable. So I had ceramists and metallurgists and thermodynamicists and systems people, just brilliant people. And what was so exciting was in Jack world, they'd been treated so derisively that when I bothered to listen to what they said and treated them with respect, I was beloved. Um, so, you know, um, I, I don't know, I don't know, don't be an asshole turns out to be an effective leadership technique. Yeah. 
uh, and for people if we go back a little bit Jeff being Jeff Immel I don't know oh yeah sorry about that yeah, yeah. yeah no not the Jeff Bezos which uh, you know many people be familiar with but Jeff Immel the CEO who then um, takes over once Jack Walsh leaves We'll be right back to Lou and his lessons learned from participating in the foundational decade of solar and wind energy after this quick message from Climate People. Season 3 of The Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. So in this time period, so we're, you know, we're following, the solar and wind are not ubiquitous, as you said, right? What lessons, and, and, and also for people who want more on solar and wind, check out ABBA season three, episode three with Rob Gramlich on the history of how basically Germany and China bring up um, the solar industry and how Danish and uh, other organizations bring up the wind industry. What do you take from, because you're in the center of that, as you were talking about, what, what lessons and frameworks do you take from that era? Now, fast forward 25 years later, where the cheapest power generation is renewable, to today? And then what are the technologies you're excited about? What perspectives do you try and teach to entrepreneurs? Uh, and then what are you hopeful for, you know, 20 years down the road where, you know, you're responsible for removing 2.5 gigatons for each of your 40 portfolio companies? So it, it, there's a lot in there. And obviously I won't, I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll tease some things that I think are really compelling. Um, one of them was that we got a wind industry in the United States because of Jimmy Carter um, we lost the wind industry in the United States because of Ronald Reagan. Um, this is not surprising. <laughs> uh, we invented all the technology and all the batteries. We invented all the technology and all the solar. We invented all the technology and all the wind. And then due to a series of policy missteps or general just um, antipathy, we forced that development to go away. And so now we have to buy our solar panels from China and, you know, um, I mean, I think we, we, we've reconstituted at some level an American wind industry, but still a lot of a lot of the technology was shoved offshore, um, offshore in this case, meaning not here as opposed to wet. But, um, you know, one of the key lessons I, I, I gave a seminar about this, but they first had an investment tax credit for wind. And what they found out was that um, American engineers are financial engineers. And so if you have an investment tax credit, you get expensive things. And so they changed it to a production tax credit. In other words, let's pay you for what we want, which is green energy, not green things. Um, and so it was really fascinating watching in the American um, debate about how are we going to catch up in solar that we went back to an investment tax credit. And in fact, um, there was a game of liar's poker going on in terms of um, what was the actual price versus cost versus published tax benefit. And so um, policy matters, lobbying matters. And one of the things that became really clear in the wind industry was the production tax credit would expire every year. And um, a, a fellow from uh, Hudson Clean Energy was giving a talk and someone asked him, why does this happen? And he said, senators really like to have a lot of attention every year. So instead of passing a stable 10-year tapering production tax credit that would transition the technology from nascent and needing a little help to self-supporting, we, we had to go back and kiss the ring every year. And we still haven't completely eliminated the production tax credit, even though arguably they don't need the subsidy. And similarly in solar, I mean, I think tax policy is a crappy way to do industrial policy. And um, we love tax policy in the U.S. and we hate industrial policy in the U.S. And that's why we have kind of a mixed bag of letting innovations go elsewhere. Um, so that's one thread is policy matters a lot more than you can possibly imagine. And winners and losers are not based on the best technology. Um, the other thing, though, is that um, learning really happens. Um, I mean, it doesn't happen by accident. Someone has to be trying um, to innovate, but the the rate of innovation in solar, um, you know, it dazzled people in some sense because we got 
to what was lovingly called grid parity about a decade early. But we didn't get there early in terms of number of panels made. It was just that the Chinese bought so many panels <laughs> so quickly that the learning happened. And it's not actually clear what the limits of learning rates are if you have a really aggressive policy. So part of the takeaway here is that inventing the physics doesn't mean that you have the industry. Capturing the value has much more to do with policy and who's customer facing. And we can be precious about not having industrial policy, but if the rest of the world has industrial policy, we will continue to invent things. They will sell back to us. For uh, you know, a policy example that might be a little more palatable to the everyday consumer um, is fuel standards. And I think it was Ford, ironically, the president who put them in, um, but it wasn't a continuous improvement, right? It was a uh, one-off, you need to get to this number by this year, as opposed to the California way of doing building efficiency being every year you have to improve 10%, right? And, and it's a great example of one decision that has infinite downstream effects. Um, Going back to this perspective, though, that you're gaining in, in the 90s and the early 2000s to today, what are you excited about technologically and what lessons are you then teaching entrepreneurs on the policy perspective and on the you know best technology doesn't necessarily win? You know, I, I, I put together 60 seminars as a marketing thing at New World Capital Group, um, and it very quickly emerged that the theme was always it's not a technology problem, it's a policy problem. Um, there's, there's, you know, there are difficult technical challenges, but we, we are, we are an unbelievable species in terms of our capability now, and we've never had more capability. The pace at which we can do innovation is, is staggering. And so the problem really is getting people marching in the same direction in a way that doesn't involve autocrats. And I, that's not a solved problem as far as I'm concerned, but um, the, um, the fascinating thing to me though, is, is this. A lot of people are talking about net zero, and, and I, I, I know you are. And as a physicist, the question that I think is unasked and should be asked is, what's your boundary condition? What's, it, how, what's the system? And most of the people who've been talking about this for most of the time, and I think still, think it's the electric grid. It's the wrong, it's the wrong target. We need, we need to get to decarbonizing what we do all of it, food, industry, electricity. And what really, really, really cheap solar has done in a way that I did not think was gonna be possible and it wouldn't have happened this fast without the Chinese, whatever you say about it, massive spend. We, we shouldn't be talking about a 100% renewable grid. We should be talking about a 500% renewable grid. And the reason for that is it gives us, because the power is so cheap now, the ability to electrify otherwise thermal processes in industry, um, electrify or do electrochemically um, processes that we never considered coming from anywhere else. So fertilizer is basically made from natural gas. Okay, um, cement, you make, you make cement by burning carbon to get a hot enough flame to calcine, um, you know, calcium carbonate limestone. There's a Lafarge plant down the road from my house. By the way, there's a Savic plant down the road from my house. There's a Lafarge plant. There's um, a giant substation that takes the power from Niagara Falls and it turns down south next to my house. Um, Gilboa pumping station, which is one of the oldest, largest pumped hydro is, I took a field trip there when I was a high school teacher. So I, I feel in, in, in some way, oh, and then the Erie Canal was here, right? So where I, I feel like I'm in the middle of like all of these tech revolutions. It, it, they didn't happen because of me. Um, but the, the, the upshot of this is if you go and you say, I need to decarbonize food, which, which mostly is about fertilizer. I need to decarbonize buildings, which is steel, uh, cement, and glass. Um, what I'm looking for is now that I have really inexpensive electricity, say one and a half cents a kilowatt hour, what can I electrify and how can I electrify it? And how can I decarbonize everything we do? And one of the side effects of this kind of thinking, and this is a somewhat contrarian viewpoint, is if you think that you need a 100% renewable grid, you think that you need grid storage. But if you have a 500% renewable grid, you, what you need is dispatchable load. Uh, so instead of dispatchable generation, instead of saying, I'm going to turn on a gas turbine because somebody asked to turn the lights on, what I'm going to have is... Um, and it would have to be cheap and the CapEx arguments are doable and I'm happy to talk offline with people about it. 
But if I have essentially a, a 30 or 40 or 50 or 60% capacity factor green hydrogen to ammonia plant, um, that's a dispatchable load and it can be almost arbitrarily large. And so, you know, make fertilizer while the sun is shining is the new make hay while the sun is shining. So what I'm excited about is that um, in the 20th century, we perfected really inexpensive ways to process minerals into big things that we like. Um, and they got infinitely large. In the 21st century, we're going to be able to do them at much smaller scales, much more distributed. Sometimes giant is the right answer, but we're going to be able to do them not just thermally, we're going to be able to do them thermochemically, electrothermochemically, and we're going to be able to take advantage of what is now really inexpensive renewable power, and hopefully offshore wind will add to it and so forth. But we're going to have a stable economy renewably based on taking energy from the sun and making the stuff we use in everyday life. And it's not just the grid. So that's what I'm passionate about. You've also written about net zero and, uh, you know, hinted at it about the the good parts about it. It's this flashy statement, but also kind of the, you know, the 80-20 equivalent, which is also in line with the science-based target initiative framework for reducing your emissions, right? It's reduced 90, 95%. And then like net zero, you can do a little bit of offsetting with true carbon removal and kind of like go down that rabbit hole. Why is it that flashy technology is about new stuff is so exciting to both entrepreneurs and is it exciting to investors as opposed to efficiency upgrades like insulating your roof or, um, you know, I don't know if you consider installing a heat pump. It's kind of both, uh, both efficiency upgrade and flashy technology. So what about that is so exciting? As an investor, how do you kind of spread away the fluff and then peel back what's truly impactful? Yeah, so... It is an observational fact that I am a contrarian. I didn't seek to be contrarian, but I I regularly, you know, someone will be telling a story somewhere and four out of five people will react to it one way and I will react in a different way. So I'm just, I'm built as a contrarian. And there's a variety of interesting features um, that are important. If you're a small venture firm, um, you probably aren't going to compete um, on, on checks and brand with the giant venture firms that are really, you know, sexy in that sense. So it's not a bad place to be a contrarian because I can, I, can, I can shop at it. If you find an innovator that's doing something that other people can't make sense of, and I'm talking to the innovator and I can make sense of it, the first thing that happens is, thank God someone understands. <laughs> you know, people are, the innovators we're working with, you, there's easier ways to make a living. People are driven, it's almost like art. They're driven to make the world a better place with their creativity and their innovation. And if they're doing it in a way that no normal, you know, middle of the road people don't understand, it's incredibly alienating and frustrating. And so um, being able to find those opportunities is very rewarding for me, but it also fits sort of where we are in the ecosystem. There's, there's really, uh, the. I mean, this is not fair. It's a grotesque oversimplification. But if you think of the West Coast VCs as world conquest, um, you know, so Tesla, Uber, um, I don't care what you think of my idea. I don't even care if it's a good idea, but I'm going to keep spending until you just submit. This is not an option that's available for my little $110 million fund, right? We, we, we don't do that. So instead, we make friends that have, you know, HR and market channel and safety capabilities and supply chain. And we try and invent little widgets that can get inserted in and, and, and transform those things. So there's this whole contrarian thread that I think is really vital. And I'm sorry, help me get back. We're talking about how um, the like difference between flashy versus efficient and then how that, yeah. Yeah, so um, because of the contrarian approach, I tend to find you know, things that I, I'm really excited about that I think can add a lot of value. And, you know, so an example was I was um, I was between jobs, which, as you've gathered from the history, happened more than it probably should. Um, and I, I was I was marketing myself by sitting on a, a panel that was talking about energy storage. And um, there were three panelists and um, we were asked at the end of the panel, what are you really excited about? And one of the panelists said, you know, I'm really excited about this new separator material for lithium ion batteries. Another one said, I'm really excited about this new electrolyte material from lithium ion batteries. And I said, thermal storage. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was out in left field, but, but, but thermal storage is, you know, inherently one or two orders of magnitude cheaper than electrochemical storage. And it's, 
you know, it, it, it's, it's an energy efficiency play, right? I mean, the reason that people moved into caves was that the cave stayed the same temperature year round. It's thermal storage device. The reason my ground source heat pump works is that it's basically, I'm not living in the cave, but I have a pipe to it. Um, and, you know, a lot of the technology I'm really excited about are, are, are related to this kind of, it's invisible. It doesn't change the, anything at all. But the, the cautionary tale, and, I, and I've tried to gain some wisdom from this, I, we invested at New World in a, in a, in a solar installer, um, though they started as an energy efficiency company, and I prefer to talk about them as an energy efficiency company that installs solar called Posigen. And they started in New Orleans. And the thesis was essentially energy is really expensive. There's a lot of poor people and air conditioning is not a luxury in New Orleans. I mean, I don't know if you've spent time in New Orleans, but it's not a luxury. Um, and so you had people who barely were able to stay in their homes if they, if they had to pay for air conditioning. And so Positive started out by basically saying, let's go do some simple blocking and tackling. We'll do window film. We'll do caulk. We'll do weather stripping. You know, in a pinch, we'll replace a, a piece of mechanical equipment. And um, they couldn't sell. Nobody cared. And then they started saying, hey, I tell you what, we'll also put solar on your roof. And it turns out that low and moderate income families that live in 75-year-old bungalows and don't have a lot of money also want to stand proudly in front of their house and point to the solar on their roof. And the uptake became enormous. And the trick that was beautiful about this was I have nothing against rooftop solar. I have rooftop solar. The bang for the buck for the energy efficiency is three to five times as high per dollar. Um, but the combination of the two let Posigen put, they must be up to 50 or 60,000 homes now. Um, they, they did energy efficiency retrofits, but they needed a Trojan horse. They needed to say, I'm going to do something sexy and glitzy that you can brag about and be proud of because humans are emotional creatures. And so having an invisible intervention that you're being reassured is good for you just does not get people excited. It doesn't motivate, you know, buying decisions and so forth. So the real learning um, about the sort of sexy versus not sexy is there's got to be a hook for someone who's writing the check. They've got to get excited. The idea that your approach is non-standard, that your partnerships make it capital efficient, that your innovation is a combination of three boring technologies in a way that hadn't been sold before, but now you have a way to sell it. That's what I love. That's what I seek. And I think that um, there's, there's hot sectors where people bid up prices on early companies that don't quite know how to use the money. And it's terribly inefficient. It's the world we live in. It's never going to be efficient. So be it. Um, but uh, you need enough sizzle to sell. Um, and, I, and by the way, now with, with um, vegan meat alternatives, you can still sell the sizzle and not the beyond. <laughs> so, Ironically, there is an alternative meat uh, offer beyond. <laughs> wow. Great place to transition to the wrap up because we could go on forever. But before we do that, uh, the carbon accountant in me wants to talk about financed emissions and oh. how clean energy ventures thinks about financed emissions, specifically the partnership for carbon accounting financials, PCAF and category 15 of scope three. Do, do you measure your financed emissions? Do you think about it? Do your LPs ask about it? Um, so we constantly think about it. Uh, our LPs not only ask about it, but but some of them have mandated certain kinds of reporting and targets as part of our, our, our contracts. There is not any very good methodology yet for all sorts of things. So we're nibbling at it in a couple of different ways. And so, um, you know, Dave Miller, who's one of the partners who's really passionate about this and, and works with MIT fairly closely, has a team of MIT students that are helping us try and figure out how are we going to implement a program of measuring scope three emissions. Um, and, you know, I won't, I won't belabor the point, but it's early days in terms of even talking about it. And I think that there was a lot of hide the ball, like let's pretend that there's scope one, two, and three emissions, which was basically let's talk only about the ones we have control over and hope nobody notices the other part. And I think that it's, we're past that now, but we still don't know how to count scope three emissions. We have an investment in a company called Clear Trace. Um, and what Clear Trace does, I think is wonderful, but it's not the solution. It's a, it's a step in the right direction. There were a lot of buying of carbon offsets of, or, or renewable energy, right? So I'm gonna go ahead and burn dirty coal in my backyard 
but I paid someone to build a solar farm someday. And, you know, what, what counts as an offset? And so one of the things that, that had come down sort of as a, I really think this is a cultural phenomenon. I don't see a lot of evidence that it's uniquely the right answer was, well, you should do it back to back. They should be coincident in time. Like, well, there's a hundred different problems with the offsets, but that's certainly one. And it forces a different level of discipline and auditability. So ClearTrace um, had one over um, JP Morgan Chase. And so one of the reasons I'm really excited about that is if you really want to make a difference, you really want to win the banks. So um, they're doing a good thing. They're doing it in a really compelling way. They're doing it with really important customers, but it's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a baby step, right? It's, it's a step in the right direction. The other thing, and I think I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier was that um, our companies aren't going to have their impact until I'm hopefully retired. So we're doing a lot of, what's your possible ability to impact things? So we put out this thing we called, we, we came up with a, with a, an acronym, it's CERC, Simple Emissions Reduction Calculator. But basically it was the level of sophistication that people are putting in, and I, I won't name a name, but a very senior person who I respect a great deal was in a workshop about carbon accounting. And someone started talking about um, price elasticity and adoption rates. And her response was, I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> Because it's not doable. I mean, you know, the, the um, Tesla didn't win by being less expensive, right? Pricing, making something cheaper doesn't enhance adoption rates. Emotion enhances adoption rates. So, um, so we we sort of punted on a lot of these very sophisticated, you know, what is what what does this do to the adoption rate and deployment? We just basically said, look, tell me what you're trying to accomplish. What's the baseline? What's the alternative? How many units are going to sell? And do we believe it? And it should be, and it should align essentially with our financial underwriting. So we put out this CERC tool and some other people are using it. And the biggest part for me was the messaging that if you're an innovator, you should think through, does your impact scale and will it matter? And it, nothing about what we did was right. It's grossly oversimplified. So, so we have CERC. We're talking to the MIT folks about scope three. We have a bunch of reporting mandates that are coming from our LPs, but we're pretty passionate about them ourselves. And I think anybody who's being honest will say we don't, there are no particularly good methodologies right now, um, which is not an excuse for not trying. It just means, you know, we have work to do. We'll wrap it up here shortly. A quick fire questions, but feel free to take as long as you want. If you, you, know, you mentioned retirement, um, if you were not helping companies scale their operations to reduce 2.5 gigatons, which is approximately 5% of the uh, global annual emissions, what would you be doing with your time? Don't know. Can't really imagine an alternative at the moment. It, it, it's, um, this is an imperative. This is, I have some skill. I can be helpful. This is as important a problem as there is. And, and I have to work on it. Oh, you're in the right place. We talked about, you know, we started the show talking about doing what you're passionate about uh, and kind of using that as a indicator of if you're in the right place. And a lot of people, a lot of millennials, uh, you know, which I'm happy to qualify you as one too, if you'd like. Um <laughs> One I'm, I'm, I'm proudly Gen X. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm glad I didn't say boomer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no. And this is an argument in the family. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I heard, okay, Zoomer is a new phrase, which is Generation <laughs> Z um, kind of being looked down upon too. Anyways, when I bring up the term sustainability superhero, uh, who comes to mind? Oh, wow. This may be the hardest thing you've asked me. I... I tend not to think in terms of heroes. Um, you know, I guess the thing that really changed the conversation from being just academics to being broad was, was Hansen from, from NASA saying, look, we've been collecting these data. This is not ignorable. Let me, let me show you some color pictures. Um, and I, I, that may have been one of the most important, you know, sort of events. And, you know, I don't know the guy, I don't know anything about him. I read, I read, you know, his, his review article in scientific American and, and it, and it, it motivated me. I was already interested, but it, it like really focused where I wanted to work on. Um, I, I honestly work with dozens of people who stay up all night in the lab trying to do their bit. And 
I think of this much more as a dispersed thing. Um, so I, I guess I'm not really um, I'm not really a hero person. I think I love people who are trying really hard and care, and I want to help them. Yeah. So is it unfair to ask you then who your favorite uh, entrepreneur investment is at Clean Energy Ventures, or totally fair game, or who are you most excited well, that's about? The, I mean, you know, I love all my children. I think is the is is yeah. the um, the one I'm most excited about at the moment, and and this is really just because I think of, of how far they've gotten, how quickly is 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 Clear Flame Engines. Um, so BJ and Julie basically did. Um, I just actually wrote a LinkedIn post just before we got on here. I reposted something they said, but basically, um, thirty years of diesel technology was all about how do we cool down the combustion so that we don't make too much NOx, but can we control the soot? And they said, "What if we what if we heat up the combustion and burn non-forming fuels?" And I won't I won't belabor it, but basically, they've gone from this concept to we have trucks driving around burning ethanol in in a slightly modified diesel engine, um, and we can decarbonize heavy trucking and farm vehicles now. I don't have to wait till the batteries are cheaper. I don't have to wait till the hydrogen infrastructure is there. I'm not saying those are bad things and that you shouldn't do them. I'm just saying right now we have trucks rolling with, you know, it could be methanol, it could be whatever. Ethanol turns out to be the right choice in terms of deployment right now. Um, and they won investment from, you know, from John Deere. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I mean, basically I've said to people, if nothing else works and that scales, I will feel like I've had a useful career. You know, you touched on this when talking about Hansen, but is there a book, podcast, other form of media that has shaped your thinking around climate and sustainability? No. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the short version is no. I mean, the limits to growth from the early 1970s. Um, I, I, I tend not to, I tend to go closer to, uh, I think, the original sources than the summary kind of stuff. Um just because of who I am and how I am. But I mean, in terms of, I, I love reading on, I, I love reading fiction most of the time. And I really love the 1491 book. Um, yeah. Um, you know, because uh, I really think it, there's a lot to be gained from that. And, and I don't have the patience to do, to read the original work. And he did, I hope, a really good quality job of summarizing the academic research. Um, but that was a great book. I really enjoyed that. 1491 by Charles Seaman. Uh, yeah, the book that I, I'm literally reading right now, who also wrote yeah, The Wizard excellent. and the Prophet, who, you know, bring this full circle. Uh, amazing author, amazing th synthesizer, synthesizer. I don't know. I can't pronounce I've struggled with S's, mm, but I was. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, man. You know, talking about going back to the original source, which we could have a whole podcast on. One of the things that I think podcasters and authors need to do is figure out how to take that original source information and put it in a more dig dig digestible format. And Charles C. Mann is so incredible at that. I, 1491 is amazing. Everyone should go read it. Um, and if you want a, a much lighter version, John Legazuma uh, does a documentary on Netflix called Latin History, uh, Latin American History for Morons. Um, how should people get in touch if they want to follow um, either like, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, email? I use LinkedIn. I avoid all other social media. Um, and I have... Um, I, I have an email, which I think you can find on my LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and you can find us at our, our, our webpage is pretty good. Um, and I'm, I'm, we're always looking for, we're hiring. We desperately need talent. Uh, I mean, the, the big thing that we need right now is I have 20 portfolio, 20 portfolio companies that are succeeding, which means that, you know, they started with three or four people and they're growing to 10 or 20. I think we have 150 open positions. Um, Chemical engineering is a particular need, but we need everything. So I would love for people who have an interest in working in the field, go to our website, look at our portfolio. If you want to apply for jobs, do it. If you want help um, figuring out what to do, I, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to correspond. I don't do the hiring for the uh, portfolio companies, but I'm, I'm perfectly willing to send, send along resumes and names and stuff like that. Lou, thank you so much. It's been a great time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's been it's been a pleasure you indulging me in storytelling. That's that's a it's an old man's fantasy. Yeah, it was super super fun.
thanks again to Lou for joining us today. You can connect with him on LinkedIn, Louis Schick, L-O-U-I-S-S-C-H-I-C-K, on LinkedIn. And if you want to follow Clean Energy Ventures, check out their website, cleanenergyventures.com, or Twitter, at CEVteam. You can get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the incredible executive producer behind the Net Zero Life. The original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. If you haven't listened to them, make sure to go check them out on Spotify. Thank you again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Well, folks, I can't say until next week. So, see you in season four. I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Life.